0: Welcome to Resources Radio, a weekly podcast from Resources for the Future. I'm your host, Kristen Hayes. This week, I talk with Julia Neshawat, the first Chief Resilience Officer for the state of Florida. Dr. Neshawat has served in combat with the U.S. Army. She got her PhD from the Tokyo Institute of Technology, her MA from Georgetown University, and her BA from Stetson University in Florida. She has lectured on the geopolitics of energy, climate, and technology at the U.S. Naval Postgraduate School at Stanford and at the University of California, San Diego. She loves to go stand-up paddleboarding and surfing. And with this wonderful set of historical experiences, we're very pleased to have her join us for this episode, where she's going to elaborate on how she's helping support Florida's resiliency efforts by coordinating across communities and organizations throughout the state. And together, working to cut red tape that tends to stall environmental efforts related to climate change response. Stay with us. Dr. Nashua, thank you so much for joining us here on Resources Radio. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Um, well, you have had a fascinating set of life experiences that have led you to where you are today. And I'm wondering if, just to kick us off, if you could tell our listeners just a little bit about sort of what steered your your professional life towards working in environmental issues.
1: Oh, thank you. Um, you know, throughout my career and background, I've had the opportunity to wear many hats and many roles. Um, but it's been amazing to see how interconnected these issues are. Um, starting off just even um, with my first government job and being in the military, for example, really opened my eyes to how the environment um, and climate issues really tie into the nexus of you know our foreign policy, our economic policies, our national security overall. Um, and it hit me first when I was deployed right after 9-11 um, in various combat zones and having to see firsthand local you know villages and communities being you know affected by the turmoil whether it's a natural disaster or a man-made disaster um not having running water not having the resources necessary mm-hmm. experiencing power outages you know how can these folks really focus on security issues overall if they don't have the basic resources behind them so it really hit home as i uh, moved along in my my career and, v- and various assignments throughout the world and in the United States on how interconnected these issues really are uh, fa- you know whether it's at the state level uh, federal level or down to even the local community level. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
0: Well and it's I find it wonderful that after all of this uh, rich set of international experiences you've actually ended up back in Florida which I believe is your home state is that right?
1: Correct. Yes, I grew up in uh, Central Florida in Lake County, and um, it's great to be back here and getting to travel all throughout the state, um, reacquainting myself. Uh, you know, I tend to forget how vast our state is. You know, we're yeah. completely surrounded by water. Um, a lot of our, our communities, eighty percent, I believe, live on the coastline. Uh, so, Florida is certainly unique on on many levels.
0: Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Well, so you're actually the first person, I believe, to hold the role of Chief Resilience Officer for the entire state of Florida. So I wanted to start by asking you to kind of describe that role. Uh, What are your core responsibilities? What was your mandate when you stepped into that role?
1: Yes, well, absolutely. You're exactly right. Thanks to the governor's leadership, um, he created this brand new role last summer um, where uh, he was looking for pretty much a statewide coordinator to look at... Um, ways that we can bring in all our departments and agencies uh, to focus on issues such as sea level rise, intense storms, aging infrastructure, um, looking at impermeable services, all the issues that Floridians have, to, have had to deal with, particularly in situations of flooding, damaging homes and businesses. So being able to really carefully plan uh, within the local, state and federal, uh, with multiple stakeholders at the hand, it was a role where Um, I would bring folks to the table to be able to strategize and coordinate and, and if anything, um, build partnerships with all these types of stakeholders, even down to the local communities. And then finally, um, being able to just advocate uh, for high priority initiatives, for example, when we look at projects throughout the state what you know how do you really set apart what needs to be done Um, what are the lessons learned how can you build on best practices how do you um, bring in the funding that's needed you know the states competing with other states uh, when it comes to federal funding so being able to really harness that bringing that together in a coordinated holistic approach uh, it was really important uh, for this role and and understanding the the importance of building those that that collaboration. If anything, mm-hmm.
0: yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me because I imagine that responsibility for resilience actually lives across across a tremendous number of state level departments and agencies, and mm-hmm. having someone at the epicenter of that would be a really important part of sort of having a coordinated strategy.
1: Yeah. And it's not just government to government. So I'm looking at, you know, working with the private sector, a lot of NGOs, uh, a lot of our universities here in the state and academia Mm -hmm. writ large all have a role when it comes to looking at um, planning and and focusing on implementation for, for what we have to face. Yeah, that's fascinating.
0: So, another question for you: over over what time frame are you thinking about your work? In, in other words, are you sort of working to prepare Florida communities for sea level rise and those intense storms over the next twenty years, or is your mandate? Are you thinking about this, you know, at a much longer time frame than that?
1: Well, I would I would say we, we absolutely should look at the long-term um, focus when it comes to these issues. Uh, at, but at the same time, it helps to have a plan for the next 10, 20, 30 years um, when it comes to uh, ri- rising sea level, for example. Uh, mm-hmm. So to be able to really prepare for what's coming, um, where communities can at least set up um, the right uh, steps, and resiliency steps in place for that next storm. Um, you know, our hurricane season is very, very long uh, between June and November. And so um, whether you're dealing with the storm or preparing for the storm or even a recovery aspect of that, there's various uh, levels of projections that we have to look at. And it's important um, that we look at those challenges and take them in consideration, especially when there's available technology and innovation that could be part of those solutions. Mm -hmm.
0: Well, we've mentioned sea level rise a couple of times and I just wanted to sort of dive into that particular topic in a little bit more detail and ask if you can give us a broad overview of sort of what the effects of of sea level rise are in for the state of Florida today. I think many of us sort of non-Floridians we've seen some examples with some media reports about, you know, sunny day flooding where flooding is actually not even necessarily associated with an extreme weather event. It's just happening sort of on a regular basis now. So how else is is sea level rise sea level rise actually manifesting itself in Florida today?
1: Absolutely. I mean, you're exactly right. There are certainly concerns with of course sunny day flooding and with uh, issues with, for example, our septic tanks, um, heavy rains, uh, king tides that are impacting our states, um, all relevant to all the communities, whether even if you're not uh, living on the coastline, uh, we're experiencing it both uh, as well inland. Um, And so I know, by the way, um, with the fact that there's saturation issues from um, a storm that might have even passed a, w- a week after. Um, mm-hmm. So really trying to get an understanding of all the uh, vulnerability assessments that are out there um, and these compacts and coalitions that have formed throughout the state to address these issues. But you're exactly right. it's it's no longer about that hurricane or because of a severe thunderstorm. it's it's we are seeing these projections um, of rising sea level. The science is there. it's the data is there. Um, we're seeing it firsthand as it you know as as the sea level rise. Uh, impacts even our seawalls and and building on other solutions. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
0: And you mentioned earlier that, you know, as, as I'm assuming all of our listeners will know, although perhaps it's worth noting anyway, that Florida is in fact pretty much completely surrounded by water. And that seems to present some I won't say unique, but extra challenges, right? There's that much more coastline, there are that many more coastal communities. But I imagine there are still things that Florida can learn from other states and potentially does learn from other states. So can you say a little bit about how Florida compares and and if you do have
1: ways of sort of learning
0: from your your peers in other places?
1: Absolutely. Um, as I mentioned, there's a lot of lessons learned and and we're no stranger to these, to these challenges. Um, I've already been talking to various states uh, especially in the Southeast part of the nation, about how we're going about um, putting these resiliency plans in place, creating a mm-hmm. statewide strategy to serve as more like a guiding policy, if anything, um, being able to identify targets and goals that are tangible um, and that can really uh, impact a community, uh, whether again, if it's about highlighting a particular project, um, even just the basics of creating you know a list of all the correct points of contacts that that focus on these is- issues, understanding. Who within the Department of Transportation, or and with working with Environmental Protection, you know, having that catalog of individuals and 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 um, regional and state actors that can come together um, when when you look at the steps to create a, a plan uh, that's holistic uh, and and really collaborative in that standpoint. So um, you know, I hate to, to beat a dead horse here, but that's really what it comes down to, as opposed to being in this reaction mode. You know, mm-hmm. being able to be proactive with a true um, like I said, holistic plan that takes into consideration um, all of these challenges is, is a great first step. And I think that's something any community or any state um, could certainly learn from and benefit from. hmm mm-hmm. mm-hmm.
0: Uh, So one more sea level rise question for you, in particular. Uh, We recently had a guest on Resources Radio, um, Bob Litterman. And Bob is a a leading, he's leading a task force for U.S. federal financial regulators on climate risk. That's certainly his area of expertise. And he actually mentioned that he thinks markets are starting to price in climate risks for coastal property. So I, I just wanted to ask you a little bit about that. Are you seeing or do you anticipate maybe in the coming years, a noticeable effect on coastal property values or investment in Florida given some of these emerging and and growing risks?
1: Yeah, look, we must we must certainly take in consideration how do we protect our property and our and our property values. Um it's certainly a, a, an economic impact that that certainly is taking uh, shape. And so it's helpful to really include climate projections with any of that that planning uh, overall. so we're we're definitely looking into that as we as we see um, a way to protect and understanding the uh, financial risks behind it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
0: so let's let's move on and talk about some of the some of the strategy development and some of the solutions that your team has been putting together. Uh, So what are some of the activities that you expect, given the conversations that you've had and the thinking you've done, that you expect coastal communities will need to take to reduce their exposure to some of these risks? And do they vary a lot uh, around the state?
1: Yes. So, uh, you know, I've been down in South Florida, for example, um, down in the Miami area, Fort Lauderdale area, Tampa and and Naples, and then comparing that to a little bit more of what's happening in the northeast part of the state, for example, Mm -hmm. up in Jacksonville. um, You know, you're seeing communities both individually and regionally uh, conducting these assessments, you know, whether they're in a flood prone area or projected to be um, understanding uh, the risks and the exposures, it's just a good first step. And then uh, mitigation is another piece of that, and that's a, that's a key when you look at the various activities that are being done in a collaborative way. So as I mentioned earlier, to see a lot of these communities and, and, and cities come together in a regional way where they're forming these compacts with multiple counties involved to really share the information and the data. Um, you know, there's no, there's no borders when it comes to these issues, and it's certainly too expensive to go at it alone. So seeing them be able to work in that collaborative way uh, and seeing that forming across the state to really help offset some of these issues, um, it, it's 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 truly progressing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
0: And what are some of the elements of plans that, um, if you can mention any of those in particular, sort of the elements of plans that communities might be might be putting together?
1: Oh yeah, I mean, for example, uh, looking to improve some of the f- flood protection systems uh, that might be available out there with the technologies and innovations. Um, understanding, you know, with the aging infrastructure, what needs to be updated, um, what may need to be replaced, whether it's in storm uh, surge challenges with, with with stormwater projects overall, understanding the funding behind that. Um, so there's various. Oh, and then another area that I, I talk quite a bit about when I'm out there is how are we t- benefiting and really taking. Um, advantage of the fact of we have a lot of natural infrastructure. Mm -hmm. Uh, So you have living shorelines, for example, that could really benefit and help um, even be much more cost efficient than a a regular seawall when we're looking at our sand dunes, when we're looking at uh, mangroves um, and our sea marshes. I mean, there's so much opportunity from that standpoint. Um, So being able to take some of those measures into play, uh, taking those steps, incorporating that in the municipalities and in the counties, I think is a part of it. And then of course the budgeting and planning overall, you know, you need to make sure that you have something set aside for that and understanding, Mm -hmm. um, you know, there will potentially be another storm and how do you properly um, prepare for that. So even just a checklist uh, could go such a long way with these communities.
0: Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. Certainly the the financial considerations are just as important as the actual sort of preparatory steps that a community might want to take. So that makes a lot of sense. Um, so at the risk of asking you to, to uh, call out one particular community, although in a positive way, but um, can you give us one example of a, of a community that comes to mind um, in the state of Florida that has really sort of pulled all these pieces together and developed a, a clear plan to enhance their resilience, something that you think might perhaps be a model for other, other communities?
1: Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I had the opportunity last fall to attend um, a mayor's summit on flooding, for example, that was sponsored by the American Flood Coalition. And it was great to hear about where some communities uh, have advanced in their plans um, and steps taking um, t- or moving forward towards those efforts. And I was really impressed to see, for example, the city of Del Rey, who, who actually did uh, a cost assessment of, of the vulnerabilities that they had, particularly when it came to flooding in their communities. Um, you know, at the end of the day, you can have these vulnerability assessments, but if you don't have the cost associated with it, um, that can be just as challenging. Um, I've, I love to see what uh, Broward County's been doing and in Fort Lauderdale, you know, they've come up with some great tools that can actually track real-time flooding issues. And and I thought that was a great example in addition to all the other projects they've been doing. And then finally, I was recently in Pinellas County in the St. Pete area, uh, and the fact that they've created these web-based tools uh, that could list the projections and also just the um, resources that are necessary for any community wanting to build upon or a development area um, to take some resiliency measures. And and they had a whole array of uh, websites and lists um, that, that could at least help someone who's starting from scratch, um, whether it's even at the individual home level or at the business level. Um, but it was really impressive to see that they've taken steps already to invest in these web-based tools. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, that actually makes me think of one other question that I wanted to ask you as well, which is about, uh, it seems like this kind of planning requires a tremendous amount of data. It requires data about... Uh, costs of particular measures that a community might take. It requires data about the level about the science uh, behind climate change and what that might the impacts that might lead to. And so uh, you mentioned earlier that in addition to working with other with within the state, you work with academia, you work with the private sector, where are Where are you generating or where are these communities generating all that data? Um, That's probably a very large question to ask you, but can you speak to sort of some of the sources of the information that's really feeding
1: this decision making? Absolutely. So in addition to what's available by NOAA and FEMA, um, you know there are some um, scenarios out there that provide the projections and the, and the metrics. And other communities have, have taken um, outside sources as well to create um, their own um, assessments for in the communities. So there's not necessarily a baseline. But I will say um, we do have a wonderful uh, chief science officer as well who's helping us with some of those metrics. And so being able to work closely with him and being able to disseminate some of that information or at least uh, point folks in the right direction and how they can obtain some of that data and that science that's available. You know, it's just really interesting to see. There's, there's no lack of information out there. The science is there, the data is there. Um, it's just how we use it. And so being able to do that and tailor that into these assessments that could lead to um, a, a really good adaptation plan and mitigation plan um, is what makes this effective. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, and as you mentioned, making that data, you know, sort of compiling that into tools that people can use through web-based interfaces, and I think half the battle sometimes is just putting that data into a format that people can actually take advantage of, and not have to sort of search through, you know, background databases, but but really have those visual aids and the the types of tools that make them good interfaces for the for the Certainly. public. And
1: yeah, mm-hmm. and I was going to just add, you know, and that's something else that my office is looking at. We're we're hoping to help. You know, especially for certain communities that may be starting from scratch. I mean, you you don't need to be a technical expert to make these plans in place. So we're you know able to maybe send out some teams to help. Um, help folks wa- and walk them through how, you know, these, these type of steps and how you can use that data and that information. So there's a lot available um, within our Department of Environmental Protection, for example. We've got a, an Office of Resilience and Coastal Protection, um, and they've been able to take folks out there and, and provide some of the training uh, available. So it's, it's great to see that and being able to connect and help facilitate those folks to those mm-hmm. resources.
0: Yeah, I'm sure that's both a very important and probably quite fulfilling part of your role, I would imagine, is working with communities and sharing knowledge and and really, you know, sort of expanding the the set of possibilities to help the state be more resilient.
1: Absolutely. I mean, look, Florida is, you know, to me, again, being back here just and just seeing the beauty and the nature of it all. And there's such great opportunity. Um, It's not all gloom and doom. There's there's great ways um, and how we can really think strategically with the growth and how we look at, you know, the tourism industry, for example, and how we can really truly ad- address these economical, physical, and environmental challenges that we will continue to face. So there's there's no doubt that that opportunity is there, and we can certainly build upon that, and Florida can certainly help lead the way. Mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. Well, and just one other, I want to sort of circle back to one other point that you mentioned too, which is the state does have a tremendous amount of natural infrastructure that can actually help with resilience and um i wondered if you could just say a little bit more you mentioned a few of those types of of features before but is there anything more you can sort of add about the types of uh, natural infrastructure projects that are underway in the state either
1: restoration or uh, construction or or Oh, certainly. Like, for example, I'm partnering with our Department of Environmental Protection. Um, they've got programs now to look at our wetlands and our beaches, um, wastewater treatment, um, working with our Fish and Wildlife Conservation Office too, you know, looking at, uh, you know, how do we protect our sea turtles, our coral reefs uh from that standpoint but then you know we're also looking at our department of transportation that that has you know the technology under underway to look at critical infrastructure but but with regards to the natural infrastructure you know a lot of that you know is a way to improve that community resilience and i think by building a repository of of case studies that that could be helpful um, but if with regards to any specifics like i said I, to me the biggest ones and i've gotten to see firsthand in some site visits is the beauty of our mangroves and being able mm-hmm. to help um, protect uh, those areas that can serve as a true buffer from flooding, mm-hmm. um, I think is is just a great example.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, if you need uh, other folks from other states to come and explore those natural features <laughs> so that we can share the information elsewhere, I'd be happy to volunteer.
1: Oh, fantastic. We'll take you up on that offer. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I guess
0: I just have two final questions for you. One is, um, uh, both of them are sort of advice questions, but the first one is specific to your role. And, you know, if you were giving a piece of advice to, let's say, a state that didn't yet have a chief resilience officer role, but was looking to create one, um, and given your experience to date, what would you, what's the piece of advice that you might give to a another state that was looking to build yeah. a role like this one?
1: No, thank you. I, you know, I think first and foremost is, it's not about reinventing the wheel. These are issues that have been ongoing for a number of years. So, I would say my first piece of advice would be, um, you know, you've got to build those partnerships. Number one, you have to think about this from a, a holistic standpoint. Um, take stock, take inventory of of some of the initiatives that are already out there and the successes that are out there, um, so we can, you know, really understand. Uh, where you are and how you can truly plan um, for the future. You know, it's, it's it's about developing those relationships, I think, is a, is a great starting point and building on the successes of various offices within your state. So again, mm-hmm. you, you don't necessarily start from scratch from that standpoint. And, and, um, and then, you know, use that role to really be effective in the sense of helping to cut some of the red tape and the bureaucracy that could be stalling a resiliency project, mm-hmm. for example. Um, try to synthesize the findings. I mean, you, you mentioned that earlier with the data take the information from the state, regional, and local level and look at that research and and being able to kind of put that together, maybe even creating kind of a a one-stop resiliency shop and and, and try to centralize that because it can be really um, discouraging to have to, you know, maneuver your way through various websites um, that take you to various areas um, um, and it's not always easy. And then I guess another piece of advice would be um, you know, there's a lot of projects out there and there's a lot of great ideas and so you have to really be more, a little bit more targeted when you think about the investment opportunities, um, the economic impacts of that, um, and again, being able to advocate for your state when it comes to the federal funding. There's there's mm-hmm. quite a bit of programs out there. I mean, I'm really surprised whether it's through the Small Business Association, whether it's through FEMA, Agriculture, um, EPA. I mean, there's just so much out there that's available and so there's no reason why we can't um, be able to, to identify concrete projects and build from there uh, mm-hmm. as well. So uh, there's a lot of building blocks if you think about, you know, the future for your respective state. So using that best data and that innovation can really unlock that potential for adaptation and mitigation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. This idea that we can all learn from each other and therefore save ourselves some time and move towards action more quickly, I think is true mm-hmm. across a range of, of sort of climate strategies but it seems like adaptation it's it's particularly relevant for folks to sort of learn from experience of those who have come before them so Certainly, certainly great Well, um, Dr. Nashua, thank you again for joining us. I just want to close with our regular ending feature for the podcast, which we call Top of the Stack. And um, I was wondering if you could recommend for our listeners something that you've read or watched or heard, like a podcast recently, um, (laughs) related to the issues that you work on that you think might be really interesting for others to enjoy.
1: Oh, yeah. Um, I came across a great article um, called Master the Disaster, and it touches a little bit about why CFOs have to initiate kind of natural catastrophe preparedness and looking at that from beyond. I think that's a, that was a great article, I think, from uh, FM Global was the, was the folks that put that out in this report. Um, but it was very interesting to see some of the analysis um, from that standpoint, um, even when you're looking at the effects of certain hurricanes for the past number of years uh, and other weather disasters that that took effect and that affected um, some of the financial impacts of, of, of or the volatility, uh, for example, um, because of inaction. And then the other book I just started reading was *The Geography of Risk* by Gilbert Gall. Mm-hmm, um, it mm-hmm. just came out, actually, I think uh, last spring, and I thought it was also, uh, so far from what I've seen, a great. Um, compilation if anything about looking at some of the incentives that are out there um, uh, on what happens if you plan versus what you don't plan when it costs um, so much when you think about all the issues with uh, the coastal amenities, looking at our roads and our bridges and our buildings um, and how that affects um, these communities, especially after a hurricane. So um, it's it's a good way to think about when you think about these coastlines. Again, what are the clashes and the dynamics between the economic interests and the nature behind that to um, dealing with issues with regulators and developers? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
0: Great. Yeah, that's a book that I've actually heard mentioned before. So ah. given the second given the second <laughs> reference to it, it's definitely something I'm going to have to check out myself. But um, But thank you again for joining us on Resources Radio. It's really a pleasure. I hope we have a very non-existent hurricane season for you guys this year so (laughs) you (laughs) you won't have to be dealing in real time but it's
1: good to know you're prepared absolutely i appreciate it have a great rest of the day
0: okay thanks so much take care
1: you've been listening to resources radio
0: thanks for tuning in if you have a minute we'd really appreciate you leaving us a rating or a comment on your podcast platform of choice also feel free to send us your suggestions for future episodes Resources Radio is a podcast from Resources for the Future. RFF is an independent, nonprofit research institution in Washington, D.C. Our mission is to improve environmental, energy, and natural resource decisions through impartial economic research and policy engagement. Learn more about us at rff.org. The views expressed on this podcast are solely those of the participants. They do not necessarily represent the views of resources for the future, which does not take institutional positions on public policies. Resources Radio is produced by Elizabeth Wassett with music by Daniel Ramey. Join us next week for another episode.